my name is Megan Dobraz. I'm the pastor of Adult Ministries. Hello. Good to see you all. Oh, gosh. Hi. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you know this, but the 6 o'clock service does not have a very good reputation for being interactive. So, you know, follow your hearts. Do what you want to do. Now you know. Uh, this is my first sermon, I guess really my fourth sermon, but my first sermon day since I got back from sabbatical. So it's kind of a big deal. Uh, if you haven't heard, uh, Bethany gave me a three-month sabbatical from mid-May to mid-August, and it was awesome. I learned a ton. I slept a ton. It was great. Uh, I created some new habits. They were good habits. Uh, I made some life changes, and I connected with a bunch of really important relationships, so it was terrific. It's really proven to be this life marker. I've I found myself using the phrase before sabbatical, yada, yada, and after sabbatical, I, I didn't expect that to happen, but it just has been like this marker for me. That being said, I'm not quite sure what Richard was thinking when my first sermon back, he gives me Romans 6, which is the chapter in the New Testament that uses the word sin the most. Uh, it's really second only to Leviticus 4, uh, which is where you learn about how to give a sin offering. So I don't know if he's like, I saw your posts while you were gone. Do some studying. Uh, or if he's like, well, you're rested, you take this. So I'm not sure either way. I guess I'll be flattered, but that's fun. Welcome back, me. Uh, yeah. I don't know if this is a thing for everybody, but even as a pastor, the word sin, sometimes like I get nervous around that word. Not the concept of sin. The concept of sin, I get, I'm behind, totally, not totally understand, but I get it generally. I'm on board. That on my own, separate from God, I'm a disaster. I don't live the life that God would want for me entirely. I miss the mark. I fall short. I don't have this full life. I'm susceptible to shame. And in and of myself, I can't fix the majority of the things that are the matter with me. Even once I become aware of them, which is not always the case initially. So conceptually, I get it. I cannot level up. I can't do it on my own. But I think that God through Jesus can. So that's good news. But the word sin sometimes, again, makes me a little bit nervous because sometimes I think people misappropriate this word to shame people, to determine or control morality, to be used in legalistic arguments over what's right and wrong. And frankly, instead of helping us figure out aspects of our life that are unhealthy or where we've moved, distanced ourselves from God, are hurting ourselves or others, that we've instead narrowed this word sin to, spe- to be this specialized list of predatory characteristics that the majority of humanity doesn't do. Interesting. So as we continue in our series on Romans and look specifically at Romans 6, which is rife with this word sin, Paul is not just talking to murderers and human traffickers. Though if you are doing either of those things, please stop immediately. But he's talking about anything in our lives that pulls us away from God. The life that God would want for us. The life in Christ that we've said we wanted. One that is marked by the giving and receiving of grace. A life that is open to being changed by God and his community. As well as being an instrument to bring about change where injustice is prevailing. One that faces our regrets disappointments and sadnesses by giving them to God and allowing him to be the forgiving, redemptive God that he wants us to be. Sometimes calling an action that I'm doing sin is the first hurdle for me because I have a hang-up with this word sometimes. 
the majority of the things that I do that fall into the sin category are not heinous things. But they're still moving me away from God, away from the life I say that I want. And this is what Paul is talking about. This is how he's using the word sin here in Romans 6. Anything that's subduing the power of Christ in our lives. Hopefully, for those of you who are like me, who also have a little bit of a hang-up with this word, uh, you can like, get behind that that's not what Paul is entirely intending. We can get behind this meaning and set, away the, set aside the ways that it has been misused. For those of you who didn't have a hang-up with the word in the first place, thank you very much for your patience. So now that we have that taken care of, one of the theses in Romans 6 is found in verse 16. You belong to the power you choose to obey. Paul, throughout the chapter, gives us different looks at what he's referring to in regards to that power. And specifically, he uses two verb tenses, and he makes room for the third verb tense. Now, before you, like, panic because we're about to talk about verb tenses, you should know that I'm pretty sure that I'm one of the coolest people on staff. That's not saying too much when you look at who I'm comparing myself to, but, like, know that I'm not a nerd. Verb tenses are not something I, like, study for fun. So I think it'll be meaningful uh, for all of us. So let's take this closer look at these three verb tenses uh, of the concept. This is our outline for tonight. So the concept of power in three verb tenses in Romans 6. The first is the indicative used for stating facts tells us what God has done. The imperative, which is used for commands, tells us how to respond. And the subjunctive, used for stating possibilities. What would happen if... So if you're a linguist, I'm sure, I really am hoping you're on the edge of your seat because this is probably as nerdy as I get, but still, the rest of us hang in there. So indicative, the verb tense that describes a state of being, really heavily, through from verse 4 to 14, Paul is offering a statement of fact regarding what Jesus has done for us. Through his death and resurrection, Christ offers us an entirely new life, freed from the penalty of sin and death. This freedom and power is so complete that the message version of the Bible describes it as we've moved, that our old self lives in a different country. We don't know that address anymore. We can't go back to it. We've packed up and left there for good. It's, we're so far away from that old self of us. We don't have that address anymore. Paul sees implicitly through Christ that we are offered a true life change. And he's not talking about a metaphorical one or one that will come over time or over the journey that is our spiritual life. He's being very judicial and even uh, forensic in his language as he's saying, like, no, this, this has happened already. It's complete. It's offered to us right now. We really and truly can live a life that is no longer, no longer under the power of sin. Verse 6 tells us, no longer be slaves to sin. Like, you don't have to do that anymore. It's done. The death of Christ severed the hold of sin on a person, and God has given us this gift, a life of no more sin that's ours for the taking, to say yes to this is a fundamental transfer of who we are, of our loyalties from sin to righteousness. It's not partial. It's not sometimes. Again, it's not like if you work a little bit harder, you'll get it. It's all the time there for us. It's this gift that we have been given. I think many of us can think of examples, of, uh, examples in our lives where we've had these transformations where you can think back and go, oh, I used to not be very awesome in this category, but I don't struggle with that anymore thank goodness, for whatever reason, or ways that we weren't honoring God, and now that's not 
quite to the same effect that it is uh, or that it used to be in our lives. Daryl Davis is this American R&B blues musician, and he's illustrated this kind of fundamental change in how he has sought friendship. Uh, when he was 10 years old, he has, his, he has his first experience with racism, and it blows his mind. He, he says, I couldn't figure out why someone would hate me if they don't even know me. So he's, again, he's this blues musician. He's playing throughout the South. He's experiencing racism again and again and again, and he still can't figure out why people hate him if they don't even know him. So he moves into adulthood, and decide, like this question is still really plaguing him, so he decides that he is going to find out by, a, by asking somebody who hates him who doesn't even know him. So he literally, this is no joke, calls up the local KKK leader, who's the imperial wizard. Uh, I don't know the structure of the KKK very well at all, uh, but this is like a leader in the KKK. He calls him and says, hey, can you meet so we can talk? Does not happen to mention that he's black. Uh, that's okay, I guess. It turns out all right. So he meets with this guy, and he's like, I just have these some questions. Like, how can you hate me if you don't even know me? And he says, the guy tells me why he hates me. Like, he's sitting there just answering my questions, which if you think about it, you're like, bold move, Imperial Wizard. Like, I don't know that I would do that, but that's cool. We have a different belief system already. Uh, but he, like, Daryl, like, fosters this relationship with this Imperial Wizard. If you look online, uh, if you look up Daryl Davis, there's all of these, like, CNN, like, uh, news briefings of Daryl, like, at KKK rallies with all of these clans people. Uh, and, and the guy is, like, being interviewed, this uh, Imperial Wizard, and, and he's saying, like, oh, I love Daryl, Daryl's great. I mean... I'm a white supremacist, and that's just, like, well, that's what I believe, that's what I do, but Daryl's great. Like, we're friends, and you're just like, huh, I, that just doesn't add up to me, but that's cool. Uh, so, like, fast forward 10 years, and, and Daryl is doing this TED Talk, and he's talking about, like, this just was plaguing me. I didn't understand why someone could hate me if they don't even know me. And he's like, so I became friends with this guy, and over the course of time, this man and 40 other people come to renounce their affiliation with the KKK. And Daryl, like, opens this wardrobe, and here's this guy's uh, robe, like his imperial wizard KKK robe. And he's, like, in this symbol to say, I've given this up. He gave me his robe. And I'm bawling, right? Like, it's so beautiful. This amazing picture of transformation of, like, 180 between, in this situation, hate to love and through friendship that happened. This is what Paul is talking about. Like, this kind of transformation is available to us. It's so moving to me. In my own journey towards Christ, in my teen years, I was somebody who preferred to manipulate the truth. My parents called it lying. But I just thought, if you think about it, it makes for a better story, honestly. It made me sound more interesting, and frankly, I was really good at it. I got caught very infrequently. Uh, but it was also eating me up inside, and I didn't know how to stop. I kind of was on this train of, like, it works for me. It's people think I'm all these things. Uh, so it was eating me up inside. I go on this senior class field trip to see the movie Dead Man Walking in the theaters. So you can do the math about how old I am. Uh, but I, I'm in this, in this movie, and they just keep saying this phrase over and over and over again. The truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. And I'm a mess. I'm like, bawling. And it's not cool at 17 to be crying at a senior, like, movie. And I'm like, oh, Sean Penn, Sean Penn, it's nothing, I'm fine. 
Uh, but it's like, like, just keep saying it over and over again. The truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. So I get home, and I'm like, I'm going to see if what Susan Sarandon said is true, because uh, I did not know at the time that that was biblical. Uh, and so I'm like, Mom, I got to tell you some things. Like, I've been lying to you pretty heavily. And I, like, tell her, because she's, she's, like, the number one victim in this situation. Uh, and instead of being upset, she just looks at me, and she says, I'm so sorry to hear that this is where you're at. And I was like, go on, because I'm ready to, like, be in a lot of trouble. Uh, and she says, um, you know, there's, there's nothing I can do. Like, I can't punish you. Like, there's nothing I can do that will change this, but I think I know someone who can. I think Jesus can help you with this. And I grew up in a, like, kind of Christian home, so I knew about Jesus, but this was, like, my first experience of, like, interacting with Jesus to help me actually in life. And so she's like, do you want to pray about this? And I was like, first of all, life, life note, always confess before they find out because it goes much better than when you're caught in the moment or trying to explain that Susan Sarandon told you yesterday, but you didn't have a chance to tell her before you had a chance, like, got to. But, but she says, like, do you want to, do you want to pray? And I was like, sure. And now I start really crying because I expected her, like, she's the wounded party, right? And instead, she is this amazing picture of grace and, you know, God's generosity to me. It really should belong in some sort of, like, parenting hall of fame moment, uh, because it, I'd say that's a, a transformation moment of my like testimony, one of the first times that I experienced God in this real way, and it was a change of heart. Like uh, The lying stopped. I'm still really good at it, but I don't do it not hardly ever, uh, honestly. Um, but it is this amazing, these amazing places where there's a transformation of heart from sin to righteousness. For Paul, through Christ, we're offered a power of life without sin. And it's not a question. Again, because he's using this indicative verb tense, he's saying, it is. This is how it is. It's a fact. While it's true that Paul is using the indicative, he also is using the imperative throughout Romans 6. So the imperative verb tense is used, is used to state commands. An example of this imperative verb tense is seen in verse 13, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument to wickedness. That Paul is telling us what to do, giving us direction, implies that we could do something else. Though he just said we're no longer slaves to sin, he's now telling us not to present ourselves to sin, implying that there's a choice involved, like you could or you might not. So God has given us this gift of a life where we are now alive with him, and Paul is urging us to engage with the gift, not to treat it as this collector's item to keep in the wrapping and put up on a shelf, but rather to take it out of the box, unwrap it, try it on, see what it's like. To, what was it like to, to view ourselves as this person who is no longer a slave to sin, to take action toward it? So how do we move towards becoming a person who steers clear of sin? The rest of verse, verse 13 tells us, and thankfully it doesn't say, well, just stop sinning. Like, you know you're not supposed to sin, so stop. It also doesn't say to buckle down and work harder at managing our behavior. It doesn't say that if we truly were Christians and we believe this to be true, it would be easier for us. Rather, it does say if we want to stop presenting ourselves to sin, then present ourselves, offer ourselves to God. These two verb tenses work together 
in that the indicative tells us what God has done for us. He set us free from sin. And the imperative tells us what we are to do in, the, in response. We're to move towards God. And the only way this works, is, the only way this has any power in and of itself is that because the, both the imperative and the indicative work together hinged on this promise found in verse 14, that sin shall no longer be your master. It's this promise that's clutch. Like without the promise, you'd be like, well, just keep trying. We're not sure. We're pretty, we're, well, actually, we're pretty sure, but we're not entirely sure, but keep trying. Rather, it's, it's saying, no, it, it really is. It's, it's true. You don't have to stop, or you don't have to stop sinning. Let me start over. Paul's not telling the reader just to stop sinning because you don't have to anymore. Rather, he's saying, consistently consider where you're at and what you're doing. Where are you living in or moving towards sin? Where are you moving toward Christ? Where are you living in righteousness? Yes, for sure. We have a sin-free life that's offered to us, yet we still live with desires that conflict with the person and will of God. Paul understands that, that we keep flip-flopping, and he's recognizing, and he's, as he says in verse 19, that we can now offer ourselves to God in a way that leads to holiness. Paul even owns that he does, <clears throat> that he does this himself. In Romans 7.15, spoiler for next week, he says, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I want, I hate. What I want to do, I hate. He gets it. He's At the same time, he doesn't back down from what he knows to be the truth. Instead, he says, keep choosing. Because we belong to the power we choose to obey. And we must continue to choose between, between these two lordships. There are a few obstacles that I think make it a little bit more challenging for us to make these choices, to choose the power of God. The first obstacle is that we live in a pluralistic society. Ultimately, I think that's helpful for most of humankind, but it also means that we're surrounded by a bunch of people who aren't trying to choose the lordship of Christ. And their choices can throw us off because even though we might look at their lifestyle and think, I don't know if that's God's best for somebody, it's also working for them. And so that can be confusing. Like, why is this working? Should it not? I need to think about this more. Honestly, probably the same could be said for those of us who are trying to pursue the Lord's best and the power of God. There are some things that will lead to death for us all, but there are a lot more things that will lead to death for some, but not for others. It's why Paul keeps telling us to check in and present ourselves to Christ, because we don't live a static life. We're all different, and sometimes the things that we did initially to walk in the freedom of Christ can slip from a celebration of grace to an abuse of grace. And we didn't do it on purpose, and we don't really know how it happened, but it just did. So one obstacle is that there's some nuance to, to choosing to follow the power of God. It's not that there to make life tougher for us or for God to be tricky. It's just that we're complex human beings, and it helps if we recognize that. We're complex, and so we have to be in conversation with Christ, conversation with his people in order to figure out how to choose his power. Because as we said in our confession of faith, like, we can't do this on our own. We need each other. This is an opportunity to work that out. Another obstacle to choosing the power of God is that sin tries very hard to shame us, and it's pretty good at it. 
and engaging with our shame is rather painful. Nadia Boltzweber, who is a woman who I'm very impressed with, she's a, a Lutheran pastor in Colorado, and someone who I think is a truth teller in our generation, she comes in a package that can sometimes be a little bit harder for people to swallow. So if you look her up, just get past that to what she's saying. But she says, for some reason, God allows us to live in a world where alternatives to God's voice exist. For example, in the garden, there was also a serpent. And those alternatives to God's voice are where shame originates. Shame keeps us hiding and blaming and fearful and Jesus has no patience for this. Jesus just absolutely insists on destroying the false voices that shame. I don't know about you, but anytime I've wrestled with my shame, she, like she offers this beautiful picture that's so redemptive, but also very difficult. The process of destroying the false voices of shame is painful. It means that we have to look at that shame. We have to listen to it. We have to ask ourselves, who told us this in the first place? We have to recognize the ways we've been trying to cover it up or keep it quiet. I think for the most part, when, people, when, when people's shame poke out, we, we try three different things. We either try to like distract people, like, don't look over there, look over here. Or we try to overcompensate for our shame, or we just ignore it altogether, like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't do that all of which slows us from choosing the power of God that he's offering to us. Thankfully, and this is probably just so that we can keep on keeping on because otherwise it would be emotionally exhausting, there are aspects of ourselves and areas where we struggle with sin that we're able to be open and honest about. Like you go, whoops, I sinned, I'm sorry, please forgive me, wasn't that beautiful, it's all over, wrapped up. Uh, this actually happened to me this week because I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, born and raised in Seattle. My parents were also, we're like a family of unicorns, uh, which means that we like started with those three level recycle bins. And that's like, let's, that was our first recycling thing. One of my jobs as a child was to cut the labels off of the tin cans. So I know you can tell like I had a pretty rough childhood because that was a, a terrible job. Uh, but you know, we had these three levels, then it got to the big bin and then we got to composting. And I hate composting. Uh, we have a, at my house, the big compost bin, it's like this tall, has the giant lid. Is, are you guys familiar with this? It's not the cute little black one that you can carry places. You have to like drag this one. Uh, and on Tuesday, I took the compost out because rotten food is disgusting. And I lift the lid and I go to dump the container in and the container slips out of my hand and falls into the compost bin. And we are lucky to be taking care of a family of thousands of maggots in our compost bin. And so I look in and I was like, nope, that's just, I hope they sort that someplace because there's no possible way that I'm going to get that out, like none. And so as I'm thinking about the sermon, I'm like, oh great, like that was a sin, no big deal, I'll just confess it, like whoops, sorry. Uh, and at the eight o'clock service, I was like, oh no, I've told everybody I have to do something about this now. Like, I can't just leave that, like, big plastic thing in the compost bin because the compost hasn't gone out yet because when you have the ginormous bin, it takes weeks to fill. And I did think about it all week. I thought about it when I put, like, the clippings from the grass in the compost bin, and I was like, yep, still there, still disgusting. So there's, like, stuff on top of this, like, plastic bin. Oh, plastic container. Oh, it's so terrible. And so I, like, leave from the the 11 o'clock service, and I was like, I really am going to have to do something about that. Like, it wasn't enough to just confess this and I have to do something, especially because there's this person who I don't even know who came up to me, and he's like, do you want me to come over and get that out? 
And I was like, no, stranger danger. Like, don't come over to my house and get this plastic thing out of my compost bin. And then I was like, oh, there's this 13-year-old who roams around our neighborhood. I can pay him, uh, you know, $10 to get this out of my compost bin. Who's nowhere to be found this afternoon? So I did it. It was disgusting. I got some on my arm, and I was, like, retching. But there are easy things to confess. Know that people will hold you accountable, and you might have to do something about it. So update. It's not in the compost anymore. I know. <laughs> oh, gosh. That's, oh. That was great, thank you. I don't even know what to say. So there are places that are harder to own than these quick, like, whoops, sorry, made a mistake, please forgive me. I recently discovered that there's an area in my life where I harbor some resentment, and I honestly did not know this area existed at all, uh, where I felt injured by a particular party, and in response to that injury, I'm pretty critical of this person. Like, when I see the opportunity to point out their flaws or to take a jab, I do it. Like, I, I've felt injured by this person, and honestly, I feel a little bit better when I take my jab, right? Like, it, it somehow makes me feel better that they've injured me, and so now I'm injuring them back. And, you know, there's, there's really no excuse to, like, hold on to that at all. There's no question that it isn't what God, it's not what God's best is for me. It's very clear that resentment doesn't punish anybody but myself. And that the solution to resentment is forgiveness, which you might remember is a key component of our faith. So I have this like new awareness about it, but it's been so difficult to let go of. Again, there's like a balm to my soul when I take my jab back. I feel justified in it. Uh, but it also is shameful. Like, to think about it, I go, man, for a long time, for a lot of years you've been doing this. Didn't know it until recently. But there's really no other opportunity now except for to walk through the forgiveness process with this. Part of the fear of that is not only, again, because I have to look at my shame, but what? how are things going to change? Like, we got a relationship going on. Like, you do this, I jab you, it hurts your feelings, I don't feel bad about that, you go away, you come back, like, it's just like this cycle that we have, and that cycle can't stay anymore uh, because now I'm aware of it, but it's scary. Like, what will our relationship look like when we're different, when we don't do that cycle anymore? But we belong to the power we choose to obey. And though there are obstacles to overcome, Paul is reminding us that we must continue to choose the power that we want to follow and engage Christ in conversation about what the specifics of that looks like. So the indicative is used for stating facts, tells us what God has done. The imperative is used for commands, tells us how to respond. And the subjunctive is used for stating possibilities. Well, what would happen if... Paul doesn't use the subjunctive subjunctive specifically in Romans 6, but the concept is there. If we've been offered this power in this new life without sin, and we have to choose to embrace that power, what would happen if we did, in fact, choose to make that choice, and if we continued to make that choice. Conversely, what would happen if we don't make that choice? The very last verse in Romans 6, verse 23, offers us some contrasts. It says, what power will you choose? You can choose sin, or you can choose God. What will be the outcome of that power? It will be death, or it'll be life. Soren Kierkegaard says that people settle for a level of despair settle for a level of despair that they can tolerate, and they call it happiness. So people settle for a level of despair that they can tolerate, and they call it happiness. 
That's so rough. It's not what God wants for us. And instead, in Romans, Paul is saying that we could reap a life of fullness, of holiness, and of freedom. And in fact, it's been offered to us. It's here already. The only power which can break the power of sin is grace. And that grace is a gift from Christ. It's only as we live our lives under grace, in dependence on God's gracious power to sustain and restore, that the power of sin can be defeated the way it's been promised. Today we have the opportunity to respond in communion to what Paul has been talking about, what Christ has offered us in Romans 6, to know and believe that sin has been defeated, and at the same time to consider where we're at presently. Where are we giving ourselves to God? Where are we giving ourselves to sin? How is God calling you into a relationship with those who are different than you? What secret sin have you buried in your compost bin of your soul and that you can't face? In what ways is God wanting you to, to set you free to a new life? How can we be instruments of grace to others? Asking him to show us the places in our lives that he wants more of, that he would want us to be living in more freedom. We have the opportunity again to respond in communion. It's this really symbolic act of, again, recognizing what God has done and, and believing that even when we don't necessarily feel it, but then also making these marker moments for us. We do it in the evening by coming out of your section to your right, receiving communion, and then circling back. You can take it whenever you want, but I would encourage you, before you come forward, to just take a minute and check in with the Lord. Check in with yourself, see where you're at, uh, and then take that communion whenever you are ready. We also have prayer books up front here. If it feels like whatever your thing is that God's been nudging you, it's too hard to tell to another human first. You can tell it to the prayer book anonymously and see if that warms you up to humans as well. But let me pray for us as we take communion. Lord God, we know that this promise is true that you will be the strength that we need to move where it's hard, that you are in this moment with us, that you are calling us, you've given us this gift, and that you will be with us every step of the way. Lord, we thank you so much that we don't have to do this alone, that we get to do it amongst a group of people who are also trying to engage with you more and also trying to lean into this power that you offer. Lord, please speak loudly in this moment. Let us hear what you have to say. And Lord, if we're killing it, great. If we just need a time of celebration, that's also great. And pray that you would be in those places as well. But help us to, with humility, remember that we need you in all aspects of our lives. Let this communion act be a marker of our journey towards you today. In your name, amen. <laughs>